0: If you're seeking Biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Quasney, Husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher, join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today.
1: Let's go back once again to the Garden of Eden. So there's the serpent, Satan, slithering his way into the hearts and minds of Adam and Eve. Well, this story raises several questions that we just don't have good answers for, which means we just end up speculating, which is never a good idea. For instance, we have the question of why Satan went after Eve first instead of Adam. Did Satan actually believe she would be easier to tempt? Maybe. Again, just speculation. Then there's a related question. Why didn't Satan appear to talk to Adam at all? Did he think Eve would have a more power to tempt Adam than he himself had? Maybe. Again, speculation. Then how about this last one? Why didn't Satan go after Adam and Eve together? Maybe while they were sitting outside their home in their rocking chairs enjoying the cool evening breeze. Would they be more formidable as a union? Not as easy to defeat? Again, maybe. And again, just speculating here. Didn't I just say speculating is never good? Well, I actually think the last question may be worth a little bit of speculation. Since it does go directly along with what we see all the time in our world, the problem of divide and conquer. That is, of course, a good military practice. If you want to conquer an entire army, then divide them into smaller parts, defeating them one by one, so to speak. This is also the strategy of most sinful children. When you know dad will say no and mom is the softy, ask her. If you can foment some division in the parental dyad, you win every time. So I think Satan knew that his best chance of leading Adam and Eve astray was to create division, breaking up that God-given marital unity. Just think how the conversation would have gone if the serpent would have addressed both Adam and Eve at the same time. Serpent. Did God actually tell you that you couldn't eat of any of the trees in the garden? Eve, we may eat of the fruit except for that one in the middle. We can't eat it or touch it. Adam, now wait a minute, Eve. God only said we couldn't eat of the fruit. I I think we can touch it. Eve, well, Adam, he may not have said it, but if we can't eat it, surely we can't touch it. Serpent. Okay, whatever. Either way, you won't die if you eat it. Adam, I don't know. What do you think, Eve? Should we eat it? Eve, I'm not sure. What do you think, Adam? Okay, enough Garden of Eden theater. Hopefully, you get the idea. Satan has a lot easier time taking people out one at a time and then inspiring those people to tempt others to join in. Divide and conquer is certainly the way to go. And sadly, Satan confuses many Christians to take up this tactic as well, rather than work hard for unity. So let's dig down deep today and think about the topic of division versus unity in the life of the Christian. At first blush, this may seem to be the easiest of all our podcasts in season seven. Satan wants to create division, and God wants us to be unified. So to not fall for the devil's confusion, we make every attempt to be in unity and never be divisive. Unfortunately, it's just not that simple. Yes, Satan tempts us to division, but he also offers us false ways of unifying. And while God calls us to be in unity, he also calls us to some true division. Confusing, right? Well, let's work to make it all abundantly clear. We'll work on these four areas today. First, Satan's temptation to sinful division. Second, Satan's temptation to sinful unity. And then third, God's call to righteous division. And then fourth, God's call to biblical unity. Well, we'll begin with how the great deceiver confuses us. First, Satan's temptation to sinful division. In a sense, Satan doesn't have to work too hard to create divisions between people. Our sinful hearts already find unity very difficult. Think about how many marriages end in divorce, even Christian marriages. Family life can be more characterized by division than unity. To find agreement on anything important between people can be extremely difficult. So Satan exploits our sinful hearts to enforce that it's okay to be divided, that it's even much better than unity. Here are some specific ways he accomplishes it. First, by using unresolved anger and bitterness. We all get angry at other people. Most of the time it resolves fairly easily and quickly. But Satan works to tempt us not to resolve anger in a timely manner. He works to ensure a few things. First, that we allow our anger to go on for days. Second, that we feel justified to stay angry at someone. And third, that we experience the anger as painful hurt that can never heal. Ultimately, unresolved anger takes root in our hearts and creates deep bitterness. So when we are angry and bitter, we avoid the person who has produced these feelings. Regular avoidance then easily becomes division. Now, most of you have probably experienced a situation like this. Someone has hurt your feelings, maybe several times. You go a while without seeing that person. The more time that passes, the more you make the person into a bad guy in your head, maybe even a monster. Then you happen to run into that person at church or out in the community. After a brief conversation, you realize the person isn't so bad anymore. Certainly, he's not Satan incarnate. You see, when our anger and bitterness divides us, we only stir up even more bitterness. Only by resolving that anger and bitterness do we come together in unity. Now, of course, there are times when someone keeps on sinning against you, doing great damage to the relationship. But even then, Christians have a responsibility to biblically solve their anger and bitterness problem with forgiveness and repentance. When we don't, we open the door up to more and more division in our relationships. Then second, Satan creates division by creating foolish rivalries. As human beings, we are all competitors. This is not always a bad thing, but I would argue that a competitive spirit is really part of our sinful nature. Competition is the working against another for the same goal. It is competition that creates rivalries. Well, why is it part of our sinful nature? Because being created in God's image, he's created us to work together in unity to a common goal rather than us spending all of our time fighting against each other for that goal. I know you're thinking that competition is good for us. It teaches us to work hard, to strive, to become more skilled. Certainly it does those things. But unfortunately, it also creates factions, rivalries, and ultimately, war. Now, I don't want to go down this rabbit trail too far. Believe me, I love to compete. I've always loved games and sports. But competition can produce some pretty foolish rivalries that only breed division. Hatred of a particular sports team, the rival, can easily produce actual hatred of the sports fans of that rival. Fighting for the same goal that only one can achieve can make a person an enemy that could easily have been a friend. Again, I know it's all mostly fun and entertaining, but this plays into Satan's hands sometimes as he tries to create as many foolish rivalries as possible. For example, look at what Satan was able to accomplish in Corinth. The Christians in that congregation were saying things like this, I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Jesus. They were creating divisions and factions over their favorite apostle, favorite pastor, favorite preacher, favorite ministry leader. Read the first chapters of 1 Corinthians and see how Paul responds to this utter foolishness. Rivalries have formed hundreds of Christian denominations throughout church history. To be sure, some had to be created because of severe differences. But Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians how Christians should not be divided by rivalry and competition. Why not? Because there's not just one crown of righteousness. There's not just limited space in heaven. It's not just first come, first served. We are to be working together, encouraging one another in the faith, not working against each other. But the spirit of competition and rivalry can easily work its way into our hearts. Which leads us to the next point of how Satan works. Satan creates division by our self-righteousness and pride. It's one thing when division happens in marriages, families, and between Christians when some grievous sin has occurred. In these cases, one or more parties really desires unity, but the sin is so great that it just can't happen. But it's a whole other thing when our pride and self-righteousness get involved, when we believe we have the right to be divided. Satan loves to whisper in our ears and tell us how great we are, how right we are, how wrong the other person is. Again, he will always be the voice of division, showing us that it's the only way. Each faction in the church at Corinth believed that they were on the right side of things. Paul pointed out to them that they were all operating from hearts of pride. Pride all on its own is the great divider, while humility is the great unifier. Pride leads us to stand alone, to be alone, to think alone, to not need anyone else to tell us what is right and true. The same goes for the twin sin of self-righteousness, where we believe that we can earn our salvation, we can save ourselves, we can be right All on our own. I've always said that pride and self righteousness are the true killers of Christian marriage. When we feel we are working harder, loving better, or the only one who's really doing what is right in the marriage, we will end up leaving the marriage. We will divide it. Then, one more deception by Satan Satan deceives us by tempting us with ease and independence. Unity and agreement is just too much hard work. It is so much easier to not argue about it and stay on our divided piece of land. It is also easier just to assume that the other person would rather be divided as well, without really talking through anything that may move us to agreement and unity. Again, married couples can stay divided in this way because conflict is just too exhausting. This definition of agree to disagree just keeps the wide gap between them. If you think about all these topics we've talked about so far, Satan is in the business of trying to make our lives as easy as possible. While on the other hand, the difficult kingdom of God would actually bring us biblical ease and rest. So if it feels easier to be divided with your brother or sister, friend or coworker, or even your spouse, you'll be tempted to keep it that way but always remember that the way Satan conquers is through division. Now let's turn our attention to the other major confusion of Satan. He comes to us as an angel of light, proposing particular methods and ways to become unified. So let's try to understand some of Satan's temptation to sinful unity. Not all efforts at unity can be attempted by the Christians simply for unity's sake. Here are some practices that are satanic inspirations. First, gaining unity by the avoidance of conflict. Since conflict often leads to division, logic would say that the best route to unity is through the avoidance of all conflict. While conflict can lead to division, it also can lead to unity. Conflict that is well-handled and ultimately resolved actually brings people and groups together and more unified. But conflict avoidance only brings temporary unity, the appearance of unity. The reality is that cracks will form in that unity and the hot lava underneath will surface at some point. Now, no one really enjoys conflict or wants conflict. We all would rather have peace and agreement all the time. But conflict happens because we are sinners, because we are different, because we think different. What the avoidance of conflict is all about is the desire for uniformity, not the desire for unity. We want people to agree with us whether or not they really do. We want people to be like us even if they're really not. Avoiding conflict gives us the imitation of unity, just what Satan always creates. So if you're seeking peace in this way, remember that you're going to end up with surface peace, not real agreement or real unity. Another of Satan's methods towards unity is appeasement. Now, the strict definition of appeasement is the circumstance whereby a nation gives into a hostile nation's demands in order to escape destruction. But appeasement also occurs between individuals where the goal is unity at any cost. When you appease another person, you give in to his or her demands, agree with anything he or she says just to get along. In business or working relationships, these are the yes-men who will always say whatever it takes to stay on the boss's good side. Again, this technique can certainly bring some temporary agreement and unity, but at what cost? And is it real unity? Appeasement ends up being devastating in marriage. When a spouse adopts a posture of, I'll just keep my mouth shut, or I'm always the problem, I'm always the one in the wrong, this will not ever produce joyful unity, only bitter, fake unity. Appeasement is just another form of avoidance of conflict, really, but it's worse because it makes one person way too powerful and the other in total subjugation. Satan loves to make this imbalance in relationships because it ends up in abuse or worse. What I've witnessed in marriage counseling over and over again is the one who appeases the other all the time will at some point have enough and then actually become the one who demands and threatens the other. You'll never become unified with another person simply by passively agreeing with everything he or she says, does, and believes. This is making another person into an all powerful God who will just rule over you. Then I think there's a third major way Satan seeks to create false unity by denying necessary distinctions and differences. If you believe that people should always have unity at all costs, then Satan can tempt you to overlook things that actually should divide us. As I'll address in a bit, Christians are called a true godly division in some cases. But first, I want to just give a few examples of satanic confusion that leads people to embrace a false unity. These are examples from history First, the ecumenical movement of the early 1900s. Listen to how Wikipedia describes it. The concept and principle in which Christians belonging to different Christian denominations work together to develop closer relationships among their churches and promote Christian unity. Well, that sounds great, right? Well, this effort led to the establishment of the World Council of Churches and other ecumenical organizations tasked with the ongoing work of unity. But the problem is, the only way for churches to truly unite was to either ignore their doctrinal differences or somehow say they don't really matter. The ecumenical movement ended up really being a unity of only theologically liberal churches who actually were in agreement of much of their version of Christianity. But it did not produce what it hoped. It still hasn't produced what it hoped, an end to the division of denominations. And then another example is the creation of the Unity Church. Founded in 1889, the Unity Church originally offered a positive approach to Christianity, seeking to accept the good in all people and all events. Unity Church holds to no particular creed, no set of dogmas, and no required rituals. Above all else, the Unity Church, or now it's just called Unity, maintains that there is good in every approach to God, and there's good in every religion that is fulfilling someone's needs. Well, that sounds like an approach to unity that we can all get on board with, right? I actually had a member of a unity church as one of my counselees many, many years ago. She worked really hard to get me to agree with her that this was God's work of unifying his people. But sadly, I had to disagree then and now. Unity cannot be held on the basis of some vague belief in some sort of God that meets my needs. A church without doctrines or beliefs or practices is no real church. It is the gathering of a social club of some sort. Satan would love for Christians to strive for this false unity. It would keep everyone from hearing the only way to salvation in Jesus. Then there's the false teaching and the false doctrine of universalism. This is the belief that there is no hell and that all people will end up in heaven. Talk about the ultimate unity. We all end up unified in heaven one day. One of my former pastors, when I was in college, went from being a strong evangelical to embracing this false doctrine of universalism. He saw it as the only logical extension of God's love. And he was greatly troubled by all the division among Christians. This seemed to him to be the way to unite us all. Not only is this teaching not supported in Scripture at all, it's just what Satan wants us to believe. It is the same original temptation of Eve and Adam, where he told Eve that she would not die, but she would become like God. In other words, Satan taught universalism. There's no hell. Only heaven with God for every sinner. Again, when we are bent on unity at any cost, or that love is the highest unifier, then we will even deny the fact that there's division between Christian and non-Christian. Finally, there are false promises by Satan of political unity. This last effort of Satan's may affect American Christians more than Christians throughout the world. It's the attempt to get people united mainly as a nation, denying our ideological differences. In America, every incoming president promises to unite a divided country, to heal our wounds, to bring us together as one. Again, this false unity can never happen because it denies the real differences in values, in policies, in belief systems. So Christians who believe that we can be united in our politics are believing one of Satan's lies. As much as it would be nice to have a united America, what would we be united around? Anything other than Jesus will fail to be truly unifying in the end. It is a false hope of unity being offered to us. The only way to be politically united is to all adopt the same political ideology. Okay, I could give many more examples, but we need to move on to how God works to clear up the confusion of the devil when it comes to division and unity. First, we have God's call to righteous division. This goes right along with our last section, where Satan offers false unity, God commands the Christian to righteously divide. I'm just going to give a couple of brief points here. First, Christ divides. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 12. Jesus says, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. Over and over again in Scripture, we learn that believing in Jesus creates an automatic division between two groups of people, Christian and non Christians. Yes, there's unity in Christ. But Jesus speaks clearly of the reality that he is a divisive figure, the great stumbling block of history. So when Christians and non-Christians are divided, it is because of Jesus. In the end, there are sheep and there are goats, believers and non-believers, those who are in Christ and those outside of Christ. This is the ultimate division. Then we have to understand that doctrine divides. This reality is why Christians are tempted to deny doctrine or avoid doctrinal conflict. Things are said like, we shouldn't talk about doctrine. We should just love each other. But again, scripture teaches us the right way to think. Truth does divide. There is clear and sharp division between truth and error, right belief and wrong belief. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have to love those with different beliefs. We certainly do. It just recognizes that doctrine creates division. This is why denominations are important and necessary until Jesus returns. They name our differences in doctrine and practice. We cannot deny our differences in belief just to have unity. And then finally, unrepentant sin divides. All through the book of Proverbs, we are told to stay away from foolish, sinful people who will only drag us into their sin. So our sinful actions can divide us from one another, especially when they're not dealt with in a biblical manner, when they're not confessed with corresponding true repentance. Now, this is not to say that we must always separate from people who are sinning. But it does bring to mind the New Testament teaching on church discipline and Paul's admonition to the churches about separating from the sinful people or false teachers, etc. In other words, there are many times where sin will keep us from having unity and fellowship with other believers. We need to take care not to be party to the sins of others. God calls us to righteousness and holiness, which will set us apart even from Christians who are not living righteously. So now one more important section on the subject of division versus unity, and that's God's call to biblical unity. You can read on your own through many of Paul's letters to see that unity was very important to him in the early days of the Christian church. Christians can be just as divisive as non-Christians. One of the ways we are to be different from the world is that we are constantly working to avoid divisions and striving for unity. So here are some key responsibilities that we need to grow in to avoid Satan's traps. First, as Christians, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation Because we've been reconciled to Jesus, we can now both help others be reconciled and become reconciled to those we have been in conflict with. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now talk about division. We are born into this world as enemies of God. We are divided from him. We can only be united to Christ by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Reconciliation is the process of making peace with another person. Peace is the underlying essence of unity. We have to make peace with another before we can have unity with them. That amazing reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ gives us the freedom to be reconciled with other people, especially other believers. Not only do we have the freedom, we have the high duty and responsibility. So what does it say about Christians when we're divided? As the Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians, he said, is Christ divided? He's saying it doesn't make any sense. When Christians are divided and divisive, we're giving a false testimony of Christ to the world. We have this ministry of reconciliation at our fingertips by the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Second, we create unity by forgiving one another. Over and over again, Scripture teaches us that we we are to be the people who forgive others. We can only forgive others because God in Christ has forgiven us. Even stronger, we're told that we cannot be forgiven if we don't forgive others. The parable, the unforgiving servant, is one of the scariest parables of all. Unity is impossible if we do not forgive those who've sinned against us. Long-term unforgiveness is one of the major causes of broken marriages or any close relationships. Forgiveness is a choice, a commitment, a responsibility. There are often things we think we cannot forgive, but we can if, in fact, God has forgiven us. The devil loves to convince us to harbor unforgiveness. He loves to remind us of what people have done to us, continuing to victimize us over and over again. But out of the love and compassion of Christ, we are called to have soft hearts towards others, forgiving them as we have been forgiven. And then third, we have biblical unity when we live a life of one anothering. A fun study is to go through the New Testament epistles and write down all the times one another is used. Love one another, exhort one another, forgive one another, honor one another, be kind and tenderhearted to one another, and the list goes on. What does that have to do with unity? Well, can you do any of those one anothering commands without unity? If you're divided, you can't do a single one. And more importantly, when you are consciously working at one anothering, you will become more unified as a church, as a family, as a couple. In other words, doing the work of one anothering helps us move towards other people instead of away from them. Doing all of our one anothering tasks will only strengthen our unity, keeping division from forming. And finally, We must aggressively tear down walls if we're going to have biblical unity. As I said at the outset, it's our natural sinful tendency to be divisive, to break unity, or to put it another way, to build walls between us. Satan doesn't have to do a lot to help us be divisive. Thankfully, we've been given the Holy Spirit, who is all about breaking down barriers between people. In Paul's day, one of the biggest walls of hostility was between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Today, we have many other naturally divisive barriers, cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, socioeconomic barriers, etc. We must work hard to keep tearing down those walls by moving towards one another in peace instead of away from one another in divisiveness. Christians should be on the leading front of seeking to unify people in love and truth. But that unity only comes in Christ Jesus. There is one salvation, one Lord, one spirit, one way to heaven, and only one way to unity. So continue to resist the satanic divisions of this world, as well as the imitation unities, and seek to unify with one another in Jesus Christ.
0: Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwazny. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.